Hello and welcome to this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. Over there on the airwaves, and to be honest, also elsewhere in this podcast feed, is this month's Culture File debate when the Avengers assemble to talk about play, both serious and more serious. But right here is this week's Weekly with Catherine Young Dancer's latest, exploring the circumstances of the Palestinian people, Anya Gallagher meeting the INO's conductor-in-residence, Elaine Kelly, and there's a reminder of the rivalry that shaped the classical guitar. But we start thumbing the shelves that sigh under the burden of a lifetime's collection of nature writing. And this time Paddy Woodworth, for those are his thumbs, hovers over the volumes of Edward Abbey before taking the 1968 memoir Desert Solitaire down from the naturalist bookshelf. Language, Edward Abbey writes in his 1968 memoir Desert Solitaire. Language makes a mighty loose net with which to go fishing for simple facts, when facts are infinite. If a man knew enough, Abby continues, he could write a whole book about the juniper tree. Not juniper trees in general, mind, but that one particular juniper tree which grows from a ledge of naked sandstone near the old entrance to Arches National Monument. This is where Abby camped out for two years as a park ranger and as the subject of this book. Abbey does pay a lot of attention to this juniper, but he also casts his net of words around with the incontinence of a barroom orator. And indeed, there is quite a lot of hard drinking in his stories, and I suspect some of them were not written in an entirely sober frame of mind. As he warns the reader early on, Much of the book will seem coarse, rude, bad-tempered, violently prejudiced. Abbey is therefore a very awkward, but nevertheless key figure in American nature writing. He helped popularise ideas about wilderness that have been highly influential on the more radical wing of the environmental movement in the US and echoes in the rhetoric of rewilding today. And it appears that Abbey, self-identified as an anarchist, believed that deeds might be more important than his words in confronting the monstrous power of the industrial consumer complex and its destruction of the last wild places in the West. His 1975 novel, The Monkey Wrench Gang, is set in the same hauntingly beautiful arid lands of the American Southwest as Desert Solitaire, and it follows four engagingly crazy echo-saboteurs as they banjax bulldozers and dynamite bridges. Abbey dined and drank out for years on the legend that this plot may be partly autobiographical. It certainly deserves to be filmed as a 20th century western, complete with its climactic one-man-against-the-world shootout. And in fact, one of Abbey's earlier novels, did make the big screen, starring Kirk Douglas in Lonely Are the Brave. But whether the Monkey Wrench Gang deserves to be a model for environmental activism is quite another question. Abbey's anarchism owed very little to the libertarian communist philosophy and a great deal to the rugged individual that drives the very capitalism he decries. And his writing is tainted with disturbingly offhand racist and sexist asides, though he often critiques them later. 
So one minute he talks as wisely as Thoreau. The next, his adolescent braggart tone can recall Donald Trump in worst locker room mode. So, why read him today? I think because very few people write about solitude in magical desert places like Vermilion Cliffs, Valley of Fire, Zion, the Arches and the Grand and Glen Canyons as perceptively as he does. At the heart of desert solitaire, though at times almost buried under overlong shaggy dog stories and angry rants, is a profound experience, gained often at great physical and perhaps spiritual risk. Abbey leads us towards what he feels is, literally and metaphorically, the bedrock of our existence. He celebrates the plants and animals of the desert, but his greatest hymns are to its exquisitely intricate and harsh geology. An Irish novelist once told me that he had found the view from the rim of the Grand Canyon a disappointment. He argued that such scenery is more vivid in art than in life. I'm afraid Abbey would have rudely kicked him over the edge and told him to hike right down in the canyon for a week or a month, for a year, before he expressed an opinion about the place. So here is Abbey on solitude. Alone in the silence, I understand for a moment the dread which many feel in the presence of primeval desert, the unconscious fear which compels them to tame, alter or destroy what they cannot understand, to reduce the wild and pre-human to human dimensions. And he continues, The air is clean. The rock cuts cruelly into flesh. Shatter the rock, and the odour of flint rises to your nostrils, bitter and sharp. Whirlwinds dance across the salt flats. A pillar of dust by day, the thorn bush breaks into flame at night. What does it mean? It means nothing. It is as it is, and it has no need for meaning. The desert lies beneath and soars beyond any possible human qualification. Therefore, sublime. I'm not really sure I would have liked to have gone drinking with Abby, and a hike with him would probably have quickly made me collapse in exhaustion, or terror, or both. And reading him often offends me, but the delight of the best passages far outweighs that offence. Paddy Woodworth there on our latest addition to the Naturalist Bookshelf, Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. Here we go. Choreographer Catherine Young's latest work, Floating on a Dead Sea, references the geographic position of Palestinians, cut off from the Mediterranean Sea and with limited access to the buoyant but lifeless waters of the Dead Sea. The show, which Young developed in collaboration with Palestinian dancers, blends film and text with hip-hop, contemporary and folkloric Palestinian dance and also features dervish-like whirling dancers, Arabic and Shanos music. Long postponed by Covid and 
been constrained by visa limitations, it finally opens in Longford's Backstage Theatre this weekend as part of Dublin Dance Festival's winter edition. Culturefile's Louise Williams went to meet Young and her team at rehearsals in Longford. What does it feel like in the body? You know, what does occupation feel like in the body? What does oppression feel like in the body? My name is Catherine Young and we are at the backstage in Longford and I am the choreographer and director on the show Floating on a Dead Sea. In 2017 I took a show welcoming the stranger out to Palestine to perform at the festival there and I guess going there kind of changed a lot for me in terms of seeing the reality of the situation on the ground versus kind of what you see in the media. And I travelled back in 2019 with the filmmaker uh, Luca Trofarelli just to spend a bit more time there and meet people and, and get a feel for the place. There is that feeling of not being able to live, not being able to breathe, um, not having freedom, and I think that was the thing that stuck with me most. It doesn't really end, so, so the dancing, they, they continue to dance because that's where the freedom is, and if they stop dancing, then they've lost their freedom. The dancing is based on foot, footwork. It's, it's, it's very percussive footwork. So a lot of the rooms are, you know, they're counter to kind of how we would probably do it in the West. Some of it's on sixes and you're doing it with, with an, you know, a 4-4 four, four music. And then, you know, your intuition of going on the one, is, I want to dance on the one or the four or whatever, and they're going on, on offbeats because this, the steps are, they're in a different uh, time signature. My name is Jade O'Connor and I am a singer and collaborator on this project. And the song that you were just listening to was Oro Shedava Hawalia. And normally it's sung in a, I'm played actually in a major chord, but we have tried to put it into an atonal chord. Uh, atonal is more of a Eastern scale. So a lot of Arabic music is sung like that. And then Arabic music is sung quite like Shanos, only that Shanos isn't in the same scale, but it has all that same uh, embellishment. How are you finding singing a, such a familiar song and making it sound like I was listening to you and I was like, I know, what? Do I, is that the song I know? It is. No, it isn't. No, it, you know, you had me guessing and that's a really, really effective, really charming way to express it. That, well, that's great. Uh, I suppose you can get away with it a lot if people know it's atonal. You can say, well, it is in key. It's an atonal. Lips <laughs> again. What surprised me was the similarity between Eastern music and, or particularly Palestinian and Arabic music, sorry, and Irish music. I mean, they're so close, it's uncanny. Those sounds like almost, oh my God, is that an Irish song? Oh no, it's an Arabic song. Like you could do an Irish dance to a debka. A debka is the Palestinian national dance. It's quite repetitive in the sound, and the, you know, my music director Martin was like, "Well, you know, we need to change it." And I was like, "No, actually, it's 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 almost the tedium of the repetition is is kind of grinding, and and that's that's the reality of the situation, their situation. You know, it it, it doesn't change." 
the trans states was where they found the freedom. It's where they, you know, there's no thinking, there's no doing, there's just existing, you know, with the music. So you go kind of beyond the thinking mind and, and you know, that's where the freedom is. So in a way, it is, it is about freedom and that's, that's where the trans element, I guess, comes in. Maybe not the full one. So this was meant to go on last night, this, this show, and then it would have been with a very different yes. cast of musicians and, and dancers. Yes, it was supposed to go last May. And actually the whole, I think the show would have been different as well because when we were looking at it last year, we, we had talked about like, how do you give an audience an experience of being locked down, of not being able to see your family, of not being able to go places, of not being able to travel. And, and then COVID happened and then COVID did all that for us. So then I was like, well, there's no, I don't need to do that in the show anymore. I don't need to to show that um, or to put an audience through that experience and also there was um, a thing of coming out of COVID who wants to see a dark show you know they're, and actually what, I, what I've learned most from the Palestinians is that they're not a dark people they are incredibly they're really funny they're really kind there's, there's a real um, they're really positive um, and I, I think I've learned a huge amount about resilience and positivity and hope and not in a Pollyannish way but in a, in, a, in a way of how do you you know how do you deal with life and keep going when, when life is incredibly difficult and, and, and what they face is, is, is infinitely more difficult than COVID. There's no vaccine for their situations. You know, the dancers really pushed me in the show to, to bring that out. Catherine Young there, and the reporter was Louise Williams. And Floating on the Dead Sea is on at the Backstage Theatre Longford Saturday. More on dublindancefestival.ie. Currently touring the island unexpectedly is The Lighthouse by Peter Maxwell Davis in a production by Irish National Opera. The orchestra for the tour is conducted by Elaine Kelly in her first production as INO's first ever conductor in residence. She talked to Culture Files Anya Gallagher about the call of conducting and the rush of a performance with many more instruments than musicians. It's one of the most incredible pieces to look at. Like it's a it's a chamber opera. It's really quite short. It's only by about seventy five minutes, without an interval, and it's so incredibly descriptive in that amount of time. I mean, you really get the feeling that you are you are on this island in the main act, or when the officers in the prologue are going to are are coming to the island, you really get a sense of being on that island in winter, and 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 how cold it is and how lonely it is we hear the sound of seagulls and of the waves and then the waves crashing against um, the cliff face and the storms happening and how Peter Maxwell Davies put this in the score is really quite incredible I'm always amazed the people that go into conducting. I played in orchestras from when I was really young and even still it never would have been a position that I would have imagined taking part in. What was the moment of interest, let's say, that you had in conducting? Well, I'm a graduate of the MTU course School of Music and during the degree there, there was a conducting elective and I did that and I absolutely loved it. All the whole way through from first year, I really loved conducting. But really, being totally honest, I didn't see 
a career in conducting. It just never kind of came to my, my head. Now, I did as we were kind of progressing through the degree. You know, there it was in my head about, you know, choral conducting being something that I, I, you know, like that I could certainly do maybe on the side. But it wasn't until I went on my J1 to San Francisco. One one of the days we just we were off from work and we went to this really gorgeous hill outside San Francisco and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra playing. And out came this like young, so like beautiful, incredibly talented conductor, female conductor. And I was just kind of going, oh, my gosh. And it, it was only the fact that I just hadn't seen it. It was it was at that stage. It wasn't that I was there going, oh, my gosh, you know, I want to do this. It was more that there's a female there and she's conducting the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. This is quite incredible. I remember sitting through the concert and I was like, why don't why am I not doing that? I would love that because I, I, I had the love of conducting, but it just hadn't clicked with me that it was something I could do. And I remember I just the minute the concert finished, I couldn't wait to get back home in time to like back home in, in, in San Francisco to uh, email my conducting teacher. Was there any chance that I could join the class? Yeah, it's interesting at the States, isn't it? It's kind of in one way, it still does hold that kind of land of opportunity sense For sure. because you do see those kind of positions taken by people that um, you don't really expect Absolutely. And it, and like we need to remember that this is 11 years ago. So, I mean, like, I mean, now, of course, it, like it's, it's going in the definitely going in the right direction where you're seeing more female conductors out there. But back 11 years ago, especially to that level, it was more so the states where you would see that, as you're saying. I was part of the ABL Opera Studio the last two years, which is a training ground for artists who are interested in a career in opera. And then by the time the two years was up, kind of that's your time in the studio, the max time in the studio. And that's when um, Fergus Sheen and Diego approached me about this position as resident conductor. And what that kind of means is that I get to continue with the with the company for another two years and be hugely involved in a lot of the productions that are upcoming in those years, which there's really quite a lot and it's very exciting. You know, on bigger productions, I will be assistant conductor and chorus director, but I will also get operas myself to conduct, which is this, this very first one is The Lighthouse, which is kind of like the, my first big gig as resident conductor. I was a kid, a sweet and a gang that was the toughest in all the land. We ruled with fist and razor and chain till all the city trembled at the mention of our name. It's for a band of 12 musicians, but bar a very small few of them, they all play at least one or two other instruments on top of what they already play themselves. So, for example, the violinist plays the tam-tam and the guitarist plays the bass drum and the banjo. The pianist plays a piano, an upright, out-of-tune piano, a celeste, a flexitone, a referee's whistle. To me, this is all part of the theatre side of it, is watching the band as well, really having to run around the pit 
But, you know, when we're going theatre around the country, there is no pit, so you are watching the the band nearly at the same level as the guys on stage. And you are watching them having to put down their instruments quickly to pick up a flexitone or, you know, um, striking the piano strings while playing um, a flexitone and blowing into a referee whistle or the guitarist having to run so quickly to the bass drum to make sure to get back to his guitar just in time for, like, he only has one bar. You know, he could have put in for a band of 15 and made it easier for everyone, but he didn't. It's part of watching all of this unfurl and it's for an audience perspective it's it's incredibly immersive and and you can really be a part of it which is quite amazing it is very cool <laughs> conductor elaine kelly there and the reporter was on your gallagher and that ino production of the lighthouse featuring tenor gavin ring baritone ben mcateer and bass John Malloy, along with the Irish National Opera Orchestra, will be touring Ireland until December. See your local venue for details. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, The Dance of Master and Pupil, featuring two colossal guitar heroes, Andreas Segovia and John Williams, each of whom, in their own way, helped create the guitar as the instrument we know today. Guitarist Michael O'Toole tells us the story of the duelling musicians and the instrument they tried to reimagine. Guitar was a popular instrument and the story as it's told, uh, you know, a lot of history books have been written since Segovia became uh, so famous and a lot of them tell a story of an instrument which was neglected and often derided up until that point, up until Segovia gave the guitar uh, its respect. Although, having done that, he established a very elitist kind of um, aesthetic around the classical guitar, trying to kind of separate it from other styles of guitar because he felt that it needed to be differentiated and people needed to know that the classical guitar was somehow better than other styles. When Williams came along as Segovia's student, he was more open to other influences and he really felt a guitar is a guitar is a guitar. He felt he wanted to if he was a a great classical guitarist he wanted to play with great jazz guitarists he wanted to play with different musicians this was before Yo-Yo Ma was doing this, it was before um, a lot of the, even John McLaughlin and people like that were, were, were crossing over It's important that Segovia was Spanish because there was a particular culture around the guitar that obviously predated the kind of entry into the concert hall of the guitar. Guitar is is constantly associated with Spain, probably in the way that the Irish harp is associated with us. But it's really, really part of the psyche in Spain. And that became to be a very, very important aspect of the guitar's evolution because during the years of conquest and exploration from the 1500s on, uh, the Spanish, of course, took the guitar. All it went. They 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 went to South America and they 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 conquered all these different lands. And they always brought guitars with them everywhere they went. So the guitar has kind of seeped into all these different cultures. To an extent, Segovia's repertoire and what he focused on when he concertized was very very European. He was very Eurocentric, and he 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 had a slight colonial feel about how he viewed South American music and anything remotely folk like. And that was where I think things had to change.
Williams' father was a, a, an extremely talented musician himself, Len Williams, and Len decided when he saw how good John was, uh, John was about 11 at the time, uh, he decided to go back to Europe again, back to London. He, he, he decided that was the place to, to, to be for John. Williams, in many ways, is one of the first prodigies on the guitar. He was so good at the age of, of 12. When Segovia was on tour in London, John played for him. And Segovia was very impressed and arranged for Williams to study with him in a summer school in Siena. Very, very famous summer school with all kinds of different guitarists there that he met. Also, Daniel Barenbaum was there. He became a lifelong friend and various other people. You know, a lot of the, the those people that you associate with that London scene in the in the in the fifties and sixties. Then, so um, they had a teacher and pupil relationship. Segovia was extremely conservative about the the the, the way music should be played and the type of music music that Williams played was was just really uh, the antithesis of, of what he had, had sought to achieve. He was also very pro-Franco. Oh, he was. Segovia was extremely pro-Franco. Actually, some letters emerged since Segovia's death, some letters that he had written to a composer, uh, Manuel Maria Ponte. He's quite anti-Semitic in them as well, and he he, he, he doesn't seem to understand the, the plight of the Jewish people in, in, in during that time. Um, he me- mentions that Jewish impresarios seem to be uh, against him in in America seem to be plotting against him, and he also um, he mentions uh, not wanting to um, upset things by letting his his political convictions be fully known. But he he mentions in those letters that he's contributing to Franco there financially as well. And I suppose in contrast that Williams was from from a, a totally different a middle class, uh, very very left wing family, uh, very politically active. His parents were really really active. And Williams himself, from even his teen years, was organising concerts for um, CND, as it was at the time. And uh, he's always been very much to the forefront. Some of the great music that Williams has made has actually been for political ends. He played the music of Mikis Theodorakis, the Greek exiled composer, when there was a military regime in place there. He played with uh, Inti Alemani, who were the great Chilean group again when Pinochet was in, in, in power there. And he's always kind of gone and really um, worn his heart in his sleeve with regard to that, you know. And I suppose William's sentiments within the artistic community, William's sentiments, I suppose, rest easier with us. So I guess Segovia's... A fascist. Yeah, he's a fascist. <laughs> let's, yeah. not, let's not beat about the bush. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it just sort of, yeah, it, it doesn't go down as well. In fact, in America, in the 30s, Segovia's career was almost ruined because he was, he, there was a boycott on his, on his concerts and he spent a long time in, in South America. But his career managed to recover as, as sort of, I suppose, memories dimmed and people just moved on. Michael O'Toole there in his book, John Williams, Changing the Culture of the Classical Guitar, is available from Rutledge. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with ideally slightly less croak next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.